and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your weekly pop culture almanac. I'm Jelena Sofronievich. And I'm Alex Andreu. On the show today, this year's Eurovision is upon us. Is it full of boom, bang and bangers or a bit of a waterloo? What makes the cultural phenomenon an enduring love fest or hate watch? And we listen to new albums by Florence and the Machine and Radiohead offshoots The Smile. In cinema, you wait years for one multiverse and then two turn up at once. We wrap our minds around new reality-bending epic, everything, everywhere, all at once. Plus, we eavesdrop on Conversations with Friends, the latest Sally Rooney adaptation from the BBC. All this and more on today's Culture Welcome to the Culture Bunker. Let's say hello to our first guest. Linda Marrick writes prolifically about movies for the Jewish Chronicle. Hey, you guys, Screen Worlds, The BFI, The Mirror, The Enemy, and probably The Daily Prophet of Diagon Alley, too. <laughs> Welcome back, Linda. Hi. Um, in the studio, yes. in the flesh, as yeah, it were. Yeah, yeah. The, the first I'm... Culture Bunker we record this year with everyone in the studio. Yeah, and how very wonderful pleased to be is. here, actually. Really nice to all to be actually able to see people when you're talking to them. So, yeah, it's lovely. We gave our verdict on Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness last week. What did you think? I really liked it. I thought, I'm a, I'm a big Sam Raimi fan, you know, and I like. I thought it was more of a, less of an MCU movie than a Sam Raimi movie. I thought it had lots of weird horror about yeah, it, and yeah. I really liked it. I thought, yeah, fantastic. I, I, I don't know if... It's doing really well at the box office, so, mm. you know, must have done something right. But I think there are a few people who are MCU sort of diehards who weren't convinced by it but because i'm not super super into the mcu i really enjoyed what he did with it you yeah know, like yeah we we um sort of umdenard about whether it's okay to pay homage to yourself yeah, well, and and decided actually it was yeah why not <laughs> <laughs> are you heartbroken that the spider-man director john watts has pulled out of making the fantastic four movie so nope. perhaps it won't have the heart and humor of the spider-man yeah, film not <laughs> Absolutely not. Linda will be talking about some films that aren't Marvel movies later, but mm-hmm. before then, let's meet our next guest. Michael Hogan writes about TV and, quote, life in general for The Telegraph, The Guardian, and many other outlets. Hello, Michael. Hello. I didn't realize I, I wrote about life in general until he just said it then. Well, that's, that's all we've got. Uh, and, Michael, you're on the, the TV beat. What was the best thing about the casting of Shooty Gatwa as the next Doctor Who and the first Scottish Randon Time Lord? Uh, well, he's very good for Scotland generally because he's, I think he's the fourth Scottish yes. Doctor mm. out of. 14, which yes. is a high hit rate. Still no Welsh doctor. You've also been watching the Rebecca Vardy versus Colleen Rooley trial <laughs> intently. Who should make the TV drama, though? Russell T. Davis, Ken Loach or Jed Mercurio? Well, it's, I think it's, it's more in Russell's wheelhouse. I saw Julian Clary tweet last night that he wanted to play um, Rebecca Vardy <laughs> okay. when it does happen. So that's that's one bit of casting sorted. <laughs> we, just, we just need Colleen now. Who could be Colleen? Like Vicky McClure or someone, maybe. Mm, yes, I see that. And we'll hear much more from our guests throughout the show. I mean, it's going to be Michael Fassbender, isn't it? Cause, of course. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. he's everything now. Or, um, it's the law. Andy Serkis in a kind of morph suit <laughs> covered in ping pong balls. 
Before we move on, a reminder. You can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without adverts when you support The Bunker on Patreon. That means daily episodes on politics, science, pop culture and much more, plus all manner of exciting merch and special perks just for you. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Good evening, Europe. Oh, how I've longed to say that on a media outlet. Eurovision and its final returns tomorrow evening in Turin, Italy. It's the 66th edition and the first to be held at full capacity since COVID, with enough cables and wires to wrap the Leaning Tower of Pisa 14 times over. Mika is also emceeing the event, which is alternatively known as Yelena's Christmas, birthday, wedding and wake, all rolled into one. (laughs) And he's doing it in a series of wonderfully lurid suits. But never mind my lifelong dream to host the contest. What do we make of this year's crop? Now, I've already been preparing by revisiting YouTube compilations, including all third places in the Eurovision Song Contest 1957 to 2021 inclusive. Am I among other Eurovision fans? Yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan, and not a big enough fan to go and watch all the (laughs) songs of James of all time. I mean, what? Anyone else is a big enough fan to do that? It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful compliment. I mean, yeah, no, I, I, I am, I'm a fan. I've watched it every year since I was a kid. So, but I'm not. No. As much a, okay. a, a fan as you are. Your life has some balance. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, but I, I am a fan of Eurovision. So, Linda, what are some of your favourites from this year's or perhaps others? Oh, I loved George. I, I watched yesterday, mm-hmm. actually. I thought the Georgia um, entry, I don't think, did it qualify? I don't think, I didn't watch the last bit. It's a bit like um, a, a, a really weird prog rock band. Ah, yes. Fabulous. I, mm-hmm. I thought they were fantastic. Um, I liked quite a few bits. Uh, I think some of them, they all seem a bit samey this year, I find. Yes. I think uh, Ser- the Serbian entry I liked as well. Well, so I should lay stake at this. My family are from Serbia. Oh, right. Okay. So <laughs> we're always very proud whenever any of the former Yugoslav countries qualifies, especially when they're doing it yeah. in their own language. Mm-hmm. Serbia has received mixed reception at home, I should say. My dad seems to know the lyrics both in Serbian and in English, which is a feat beyond me. <laughs> but it is about, um, Meghan Markle is quoted often, and it's about the wow. the dichotomy between portraying a very clean image and life on social media and what's oh, actually right. going on with your mental health at the same That's time. That's a lot so to get into two and a half minutes. It is. And the performance... It's like rubbish pop. It felt like much, a lot as well. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you. It's very performance art. It's kind of somewhere in, on much. the spectrum of Marina Abramovich and Marina and the Diamonds. Okay. Do you know what I liked yeah. about it? I think everyone has gone the camp. Usually there's a, a, a good mixture between camp and sort of really serious mm. you know patriotic stuff I think it's nice to see something weird mm-hmm. yeah, I, think, you know, I think it's kind of post-pandemic isn't it everyone's yeah. just gone a bit nuts yeah I, I'm like so you know I'm, I love camp don't get me wrong but I was looking for things that weren't camp because I felt like there was a sort of a wave of campness that I needed to sort of wade through to find something a little bit different and, and I, I thought that was quite and nice. I thought actually um, Ireland and oh, Israel, yes. Yes, fabulous. Which yeah. were super camp yeah. Yeah. and would have gotten into every final for the last three yeah. decades, didn't get through. Mm. The Irish entry was really good. I'm actually surprised uh, it yeah. didn't make it. Yeah. I think maybe she attacked some of those notes quite beautifully, but they saw her <laughs> and retreated. Yeah, yeah. 
Alex, I know you have very extensive notes on all of the acts from this year. I have feels yes. about this. <laughs> so who are some of your hot picks and favourites? I loved Norway. I loved mm-hmm. Norway more than words can say. Anything that contains the chorus, before that wolf eats my grandma, give that wolf a banana. <laughs> Gets my vote. It's kind of a Daft Punk thing, isn't it? They're kind of exactly behind what I thought Just as well. Very yes. lupine Daft Punk. On my two home nations, I guess, mm-hmm. Greece, what a downer. I mean, it got through, but oh, oh I quite my like God. Her. She kept going, if we die together, we'll always be together. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Lovely. I just, Okay, well, I mean, it's all right. She has a nice voice. Yes. It's a nice song. It's just profoundly inappropriate for yeah. Eurovision, that's all. Um, I loved Moldova's Hey Ho, Let's Go. My favourite. I was gutted that uh, Latvia's Eat Your Salad didn't get through. Yeah. Okay. I thought yeah, that was just a terrible fabulous. And they were so happy to be there in such a positive energy. I, I Very just colourful. Brilliant. Mm. But th- things like Finland got through, which was mm. basically Pennywise from <laughs> it. Yeah. Just what, what was that growling about? at yeah. me. Sucking um, into the storm drain of your Oh, it's, yeah. it's Rasmus. They're a really um, very popular band. Yes. A massive band, like like internationally. They've Shouldn't been be around. Allowed. Shouldn't be allowed in Yeah, region. exactly. You know. <laughs> I loved Belgium. I mean, yes. Belgium is my hot tip for second because, let's face it, Ukraine is going to win it oh, this absolutely. year. Oh, absolutely. Right? Well, I don't and know. Do you think? Yeah, I, I just yeah. think they, like, I'd like it. they deserve I'd like it a lovely win. hug yeah. from yeah, everyone. Yeah, yeah. Like so it. But be also, a... Ukraine's entry was tipped to be at least top five yeah, before, yeah. The, before the invasion. And I, I do struggle when people always say that politics alone determines people's votes and judges' votes when it comes to Eurovision. A, because surely the same countries would win every single year. Mm. And B, um, Ukraine in particular has a very strong Eurovision history, including my favourite ever Eurovision song, 2004 Ruslana's Wild Dances, Mm -hmm. which won. And also lots of songs that explore Ukrainian identity and politics. So yes, I think Ukraine, I'm behind you there that Ukraine will win, whether Ukraine will host next year, another mm. question. Yeah. What do we think of the British entry? I, I, I like it. Yeah, I'm familiar with him because I use TikTok quite a bit. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm forever scrolling on TikTok. Mm. Yes. I just, just find it really sort of like amusing thing to do when procrastinating. <laughs> and um, I, I kind of have been following him before he got really big, actually. So, yeah, what what do you guys think? I think it's the first time in a long time that it's a genuine serious contender, actually. Yeah, I don't don't think think I'll win, but I think it could come in top five or something. Yeah, I think he's charming, the song is lovely, Mm. and it's... Does he have an international following, do we know? I think he's gained one through this because I know that he was originally picked up on TikTok by Scott Mills, who is also co-hosting the semifinals at the moment, um, or has been. So I think that... Quite badly, I I would suggest. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well... I I like see, in my day, Mills, if I, but... can I have my Eurovision say now, please? Yes, yes. of course. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you've sat so patiently. I well, I keep thinking that you'd stop listing countries any second now. You pretty much went through the entire field. And then Belgium, and then Azerbaijan. Um, yeah, in my day, I don't think we had semi-finals back in the day, did we? No, no, we didn't. It's only, no, so, no. so you never got a chance to see the songs before, mm. you know, the Saturday mm. night. Yeah. Obviously, there were a lot fewer nations then, which is, you know, a large part of the reason why. So... I think the way it's sprawled out across this kind of entire week now is kind of 
quite interesting. I mean, it probably puts off some casual viewers a little bit from the midweek stuff, the semi-finals. Mm. But yeah, it's become much more of a kind of event in the calendar, I think, hasn't it? And I don't understand why Graham Norton can't get there a few days earlier and do the commentary on the As Tuesday well. and the Thursday because they don't pay him enough. Well, they, they, <laughs> they actually do. He's you know he's, do he's one of the best played people at the BBC and because yeah, I mean, Scott Mills, God love him, but. Well, it's, if the BBC it's kind of like, are looking you know, for any other hosts to go slightly earlier on in the week, I'm just oh, going to yeah. lay my stake yeah, up there Honestly, now. you're in there. You know, they need more women in there. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a really bad yeah. Graham Norton tribute act, and it shouldn't be allowed. Of the we're Mills, better than this. Of the Mills made the funniest comment was there to semi-finals when he said about some woman's costume, she's going to get every channel with that. Oh, thing. yeah, I saw that. <laughs> and yeah. Ryland just, you could hear him collapsing. Yeah, yeah Ryland should be, Ryland would be better than Scott at commentary. He's been fantastic. You know, I, I'm really in two minds about sort of uh, getting British people to forever be taking that, the piss out of European oh, presenters. It's a, it's a long, it's I just, a long standing I know tradition. it's a long-standing tradition, but I just think sometimes it gets taken a bit too far. I just, it just makes me feel a bit... As someone with the European ties, yeah. I find it slightly sort of patronising oh. and a bit sort of, you know, othering people. Agreed. You know, yeah. stop othering people. It's well, not I Agreed. I think it's less so with Graham Norton yes, than it was yeah. with Terry Wogan. Because yeah. Terry Wogan, especially towards the end, had real Brexity uh, energy about exactly. him. Yeah. There, there wasn't a fond... <laughs> you know, he wasn't making fun of the campness in the same way yeah. Norton does, yeah, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who would make I fun of the campness in an equivalent... You know, UK. You know the, uh, the Terry Wogan's rule used to be: was it the tenth song he'd have his first drink? That was his. Oh yeah. Oh, he'd yeah. open a bottle of Bailey's on song ten. So maybe, <laughs> maybe he got more Brexity thereafter. I, don't yeah. I, don't, I just think okay. I think I think a mixture. I think it's fine, like gently ribbing is fine, but I think when you're forever sort of just pushing and pushing, mm. it just it makes me feel a bit uneasy. But the, you know, that's just. Ryden was dressed as General Zod from the Superman yeah. films the other night, which was tremendous—a billowing black sleeve tunic. Amazing. I do want to ask this though, because it's rare that I'm in a such a small room, but b such a small room with other Eurovision enthusiasts. <laughs> Um, I do think that Eurovision is something that's experienced quite differently on the continent and for people who have ties with Europe. So growing up, for me, it was it was an annual event. It's more than a week, Michael. It's a month in okay, my household. Okay. Um, and I've been getting my messages through from my mum with her takes. And Alex, you actually have a, a point to make to you after a daily that you recorded on the bunker back <laughs> in um, November. Her indictment of Albania's entry this year is, quote, disturbing, too dirty for Eurovision. Leia Upi would not be happy. <laughs> <laughs> I interviewed dear Leia for, the, for a daily. She was very, very good. Yes, it is much more of an occasion. But mm -hmm. what I don't know, because I've been, you know, I've been in the UK for 30 years. Mm. So what I don't know is whether that was a function of there only being two or three terrestrial channels, oh, yeah. uh, which meant that on Saturday prime time, the yeah. entire family would sit down anyway and watch the big variety show that was on TV. I think TV. exactly that, yeah. Um, or whether there is also a slightly different tradition. Like, it might be a mixture of the two. Yeah, I don't think we take it nearly as seriously as other people. But then no. we get in a right old huff afterwards when we do badly. That's the kind of dichotomy. <laughs> we sort of take the piss until yeah, about midnight on Saturday and then yeah. we go into a massive sulk for a week. <laughs> I think this is the, the too cool for school attitude that needs to sort of be 
you know, water down yeah. a bit. Yes. That's like a summary of the history of Brexit, isn't it? (laughs) Take the piss up to five minutes to midnight and then get into massive sulk. But yeah, I mean, it's still, I think it's one of the best nights of Twitter of the year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's those sort of evenings. It's like like the X Factor phone used to be or or, or something, and, you know, sort of five, ten years ago. It was like everyone's... Everyone's there. Everyone's, you know, exchanging memes and uh, puns and slightly bitchy remarks. Yeah, I miss and, those days actually. Yeah. And now it's just people. It's kind of what Twitch is good at. Each yeah. other. <laughs> and I think also you learn a lot. So one of our Patreons and Euro fans, Ewan Spence commented about Moldova's entry, which is my favourite for this year as well. The song is about a train that's just been built that goes between Romania and Moldova. And Ewan commented that there's never been a train on the Eurovision stage since the first show in 1956, which is the kind of fact I like to know. So I think Twitter is also a space for learning more about Eurovision in years to come. I think you've said that your favourite song is pretty much most of them now by this stage of the show. (laughs) Yes. There is no no train, unfortunately, on the stage this year, which is a Another one of those examples of fantastic music video. Go and watch Moldova's music video. It's wonderful. Well, then it's less of a fact then, isn't it? Like, never been a train, still no train. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciated it, Ewan, if you're listening. (laughs) Right, I would love to talk exclusively about Eurovision for the next hour, but I'm afraid that we can't. I would ask everyone's predictions but I think we know that it might be a slight foregone conclusion. So instead, I want to know, are there any songs from Eurovision's past or perhaps even vintage years that you would like to recommend to our listeners to go back and listen to? Oh, of course. Céline Dion. No, partez pas. Mm -hmm. I I love that that song. Canadian Céline Dion. Yeah, she um, (laughs) represented Switzerland. Mm. Bucks Fizz for me, obviously, you know, iconic skirt ripping. Yes. I think the last good winner we had, I think we've won a couple of, we've won at least once since then, but with that really unmemorable Katrina and the Waves waves. song. But Bucks Fizz, that was the sort of our our pomp when we had Brotherhood of Man and Bucks Fizz and Sandy Shaw, (laughs) kind of like slight, semi-novelty pop songs. For me, that's the golden era of Eurovision. Alex? Yeah, there was a great year, actually. The Greek entry that year <laughs> did very well. I think they came second or third by basically just transcribing the notes into a song. <laughs> so the chorus literally went, Avanti do fa fa fa, sol fa sol fa mi do mi 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 mi, do si do si so si do. It's like, what? You're just singing the actual names of the notes now. Oh, I like that. Um, I remember very well, for some reason, maybe it was the AJ was at the time, late 70s, Israeli winner, um, Abanibia Boebe. I just remember it really, really well. Amazing. Mine would have to be just the year 2007. It is the fantastic vintage year of Eurovision for me. It was held in Finland after Lordi won the year before. It was the year that we were introduced to Dancing Lasha Tumbai from Ukraine and the wonderful Verka Saduchka. Serbia won with Molitva, tie in the top two. Um, We had great entries from France that year as well. I believe Romania um, had a great song. So 2007, my vintage year, go back. Can I tell you my Lordi fact? Yes. They really smell. Oh, Oh, I'm not surprised. I think it's hard to wash that kind Mm. of rubber costume. They came into a magazine office I was working at at the time, but I was just after they'd won and did a sort of meet and greet and you couldn't get within. Oh, God. Oh, Oh, Lordy. But, you know. 
one more shout out. Our fellow presenter, Sean, will be doing her live draw on social media as usual. She normally raises money for the Great Ormond Street Hospital, but this year she is donating all the money to Red Cross Ukraine. Last time she raised £800 in four hours. You can just check out her Twitter or the episode notes to follow along and win one of her wonderful artworks. I thought you were going to say this year she's going to keep it. So, um, just to wrap this up, I asked a few people to tell me what Eurovision meant to them on Twitter in one tweet. And so many of the responses are funny and touching. We'll drop a link to the thread in the show notes, but here are some of the best. Wooshell wrote, Bizarre dancers, grown men on hamster wheels and camp earworms, what's not to love? Unconfined joy before the voting, abject misery during. <laughs> Gabriel Takaria replied, It's friendship and belonging. My dearest friends and I get together every year to watch it with themed food from the host country. It was one of the first moments I felt I truly belonged here. Not everyone agrees, Matthew Diamond wrote, congratulations, was beaten by a forgotten entry that lifted the entire melody of with a little help from my friends. So no respect for this travesty of a song contest since the age of eight. (laughs) Matthew has been 54 (laughs) years, just let it go. For Harrison says his eldest child describes it as the gay Christmas. A gilded eye adds, it's the LGBTQ plus singing Olympics. What's not to love? I hope it ends up uniting the world. We hope so too, Rachel. The final message had to be that of Daletta 2016. In 1990, I met my first husband who was Italian. I couldn't speak Italian at the time, so to break the ice, I decided to sing that year's Eurovision winning song, Toto Coutinho's Insieme Unite Unite Europe. He laughed and the rest is history. Her first husband, though. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Didn't laugh. <laughs> I know. There's a sting in the yeah. That's why I love that tweet. <laughs> the rest is truly history. Yeah. Every week we ask our guests to bring in a current favourite track of theirs as a service to you, the listener. Michael, what's yours and why do you love it so? This is The Ick um, by a Cardiff indie punk band called Panic Shack. And The Ick, as we all know, is the sort of sickening feeling that people's small habits can give you to put you off them. You can get The Ick from things that people do. And it's uh, there's really funny lyrics in this song about... And being repelled by a boyfriend's annoying habits like putting the milk in first into a cup of tea or shushing them in the cinema, he gave me the ick. Dance Fever is the fifth studio album by South London indie marvel Florence and the Machine, released on Friday. It is inspired by Welch's curiosity about choreomania, the medieval dancing plague, a form of mass hysteria during which groups of people broke into spontaneous dance, unable to stop until they dropped. Here's a taste. The track is called My Love. Michael, did it make you want to dance or want to listen or maybe neither or both? Well, I am not a huge Florence and Machine fan. 
um, I must say. But this was annoyingly good, I thought. I, I wanted, I, I, I was fully expecting <laughs> cracking my knuckles ready to uh, lay into it. Um, but yeah, it was um, irritatingly a great album, I think. It's kind of windswept and ambitious and anthemic and wild and wonderful. It's got a very, it's got a real sense of kind of, I think she said it's kind of a post-pandemic release album mm. and it's made for kind of hands in the air at festivals. And it, and it is very much that feeling. It does feel really euphoric and communal. You know, some of her Florenceisms do still slightly bug me. I think there's something of the kind of pretentious student about her. Um, <laughs> and, uh, people who, you know, like to wear um, sort of floral headbands once a year in parks. Um <laughs> And think that the lyrics are deep and meaningful. They're just really a lot of shouting. But I think, uh, yeah, it, I, it grew on me more than an, a regular Florence album, which I begrudgingly quite liked it. I think there's a bit more self-awareness of that in this album, perhaps, as well. One of the lyrics in Coromania is she talks about having the complete conviction of someone who's never had anything bad happen to them. Yes, yes. And I think that that awareness colours this album and for me I had exactly the same experience surprisingly good for the first time the band is produced by Jack Antonoff of Lana Del Rey St Vincent Credentials etc has this created a new sound for them or is it I don't think so I mean I, I think that there, there's there's some there's some stripped back songs on there which I think are some of the better ones um, and then there's a lot of kind of big old synths it's, it's kind of it, it did sound very 80s possibly more 80s than her normal stuff does um, but with a kind of medieval sort of stomping vibe to it sometimes. Mm. It's, it felt like it should be sort of soundtracking some sort of Arthurian fantasy saga on, uh, on HBO. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Linda, the album is upbeat, but it's upbeat sometimes with joy and sometimes with a sort of nervousness. Mm. Um, the track free is probably the best musical expression of anxiety I've heard. Mm. Is it indulgent of artists to focus inwards or is it actually helpful i mean like you can you can only write well when you're writing about yourself mm. because nobody knows what's inside you more than yourself and i think that's a very good way of putting this album into context because i think it's very much her and i know you all heard something new i didn't hear anything new here personally apart from a couple of tracks maybe for me that that's sort of it's Florence and the Machine, and it's very radio-friendly. It's very festival-friendly, as you said. And I genuinely don't think she's done anything that sort of revolutionary here. But uh, but I, at the same time, I did like it. It's very, very listenable, too. It's yeah. very, and it really sticks some of the songs. You just can't help but sort of... They stick in your head. They're very. It's very. Proper. You yeah, just want to hop to the nearest dance yeah, floor. I, I yeah, did. Yeah. I did. There is one song that I absolutely loved, which was called "The Bomb," mm. which I found a very folky, very country, and um, I, I. That's that's the one that I kept having to go back to and listen to. I think I also liked "Heaven Is Here," which is a very short single. Uh, very that could be a single. Very short, less than two minutes long. And um, I really liked it. I, I, you know, I'm not a, a massive Florence fan, but say, saying that, if you played me a Florence fan from a song from ten years ago, I would know every single lyric to it. <laughs> so I can't really deny that her she knows what she's doing and she's very good at it. And you know, good luck to her. I think I think this album's going to do it amazingly well. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I disagree that it's not new or remarkable because I just think that. It's a real magic feat to produce pop 
that doesn't sound cynical and yes. prepackaged. Yeah, yeah. And she does that all the time, and she does that especially in this. And mm. and I find that because usually with pop, you can either see the strings being pulled and the buttons being pressed, mm. or it doesn't work. Yeah. And so to produce pop music that works but doesn't feel stage-managed... Uh, it's yeah. kind of wonderful. No, I agree. But if someone played you this album without telling you who it was, you'll know it's Florence oh, of course, straight away. Of course. So uh, that's why I'm saying there is not... I, I think I'd be sort of more interested if I listened and go, oh, that's a completely different sound to her. It's not a completely different sound. Mm. Maybe lyrically and is a bit more introspective than usual, a bit more sort of less less hands in the air. But uh, at the same time, I, I, it's very much a, a sort of vintage Florence. I think it's almost more that the focus has, has shifted slightly. Instead of thinking more about these kind of stereotypical Florenceisms that, Michael, you were talking about mm. earlier and the kind of floaty etherealness of it, there's a lot more that's quite deep and guttural. Yeah. In Free, she says, I'm on fire, and it's got that kind of deepness, almost like an ethereal Bruce Springsteen I was oh, getting yeah. through. Mm. And I thought the same with the single, King, which I absolutely loved when it first came yeah, out, and it was the good. same kind of thing I could hammer over and over again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that, because one of the little notes I scribbled while I was listening to it was from a singer's and an actor's yeah, point of yeah. view, that it seemed to me like she had moved from... Um, producing the voice in her head mm. to producing the voice yeah. in her diaphragm. Mm, and, yeah. and I thought that was a really interesting thing that, you know, having spent, all of us having spent two years really stuck in a kitchen somewhere, mm. we have this pent up, well, rage and energy and and it just comes from a different place. So we're all agreed it, it is a, a, a hit. Annoyingly good. Also released on Friday, and how could we let it pass without comment, was A Light for Attracting Attention, the hotly anticipated debut album by The Smile, a band that comprises two-thirds Radiohead and one-third Sons of Kemet. We have dropped a track in our rolling playlist. It's at the top of the show notes. Linda, I was surprised by how much this did exactly what it said on the tin. Absolutely. It tasted precisely as you would expect a cocktail consisting of two-thirds radio Does that make it superfluous? No, not at all. God, no. I mean, I, if I can't have a new Radiohead album, I'll do with this. Because <laughs> for me, I am, a, as a, a Radiohead fan, I just love this. I absolutely love it. I found it really filmic. Very yes. sort of bit, well, that's Johnny Greenwood, obviously, because he's been doing so much film scores and stuff. So he brought those kind of sounds into into the uh, the album. I really loved this, honestly. That, uh, there's one, the smoke, uh, one of the the songs in the yeah, album yeah. sounds mm-hmm. very af- almost like Afrobeaty. This is what I like about the Radiohead. There's, oh, there's always a surprise, you know. That, mm. There are the, the, there are sounds. Uh, the Radiohead sounds into the in the album uh, unmistakable, and with Tom's voice, you can't really, yeah, yeah. you know, you can. But I, I just genuinely love this. I, I played this several times. You know, sometimes when you're reviewing something, you just go, okay, I'll play it once and then see how I go. But I played this several times, and I, I absolutely loved it. I also love Radiohead, and I'm slightly more ambivalent. I mean, I I also love it because yeah. again, it's like, well, you know, in the absence of any Radiohead mm. album, I'll take it. But it felt a little bit like, I don't know, Damon Albarn going off yeah. Blur and doing Blur songs with gorillas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, Michael, our offshoot 
project's a good way to keep bands together that might implode with no <laughs> outlet for the things they want to do. And are they ever as good as the original? No, they're, they're not. And I think this and I think this is evidence of it. I think it it just it, it to me it's like a textbook side project mm. album. I think it, it's self indulgent and um, noodling and mumbling, and it kind of feels a bit unfinished to me, and it kind of annoyed me a bit. Mm. Um, okay, uh, and it's sort of. It, you know, it's, there's bits of Afrobeat in there because you know, there's mm. nothing better than three white posh men doing Afrobeat. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and, and you, you read about it and there's words like impressionistic and freeform and experimental and semi-improvised. And basically all those words mean a bit annoyingly unfinished and not enough tunes, I think. And I felt like this. I think there, there's some bangers on there. And there's um, Panavision, which is the great song from oh, yeah. the Peaky Blinders finale. Mm. I absolutely love. Um, and the smoke is good. And there's occasional moments when it sort of takes off and there's beautiful bits of it. But there aren't enough of those bits for me. There's like, whatever, 13 tracks. A lot of them seem a bit scrappy and half-assed to me. Well, if I really enjoyed the single from the Florence and the Machine album, I was very underwhelmed when I first heard You Will Never Work in Television Again. (laughs) I do think there are other songs on it that I did really enjoy. I love the throbbing guitar on the same, and I love the kind of cinematic elements of Panavision. I find that it's coming at an interesting time. It's the same time we've just had a BBC Radio 4 archive uh, production called We're All Living in OK Computer Now which is looking at the band 25 years on, and it kind of feels like it's part of this historicisation of Radiohead that I don't really feel a part of. Mm. Mm. Um, I'm I'm somewhere between all those, I think. I, I mean, I agree that it's not, you know, the greatest thing they've ever done as artists, but then again, the greatest thing they've done as artists is so great exactly. that it's like complaining that you're getting more sketches of Michelangelo yeah. surfacing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and oh, do we need this rubbish while well, if we have the Mona Lisa? But no. Linda, it is your turn to choose your favourite oh, okay. current single. What yeah. is it and why did you choose it? Oh, it's Anna Calvi, Ain't No Grave. We've talked about uh, Picky Blinders. Yeah. She's worked a lot with Picky Blinders and she's worked... Uh, I think on all the seasons and this is one of the songs from it and from the, an EP that she's releasing I think very soon in May uh, and I really love it I really love the, her sound and I'm appreciative of uh, anyone doing stuff unusual stuff like this I really like her Fantastic that's Ain't No Grave it's going on the playlist and here it is person is born a multiverse of possibilities but what if you could tap into those alternative realities of yourself 
And what if one version of you had hot dogs for fingers? <laughs> <laughs> Everything Everywhere All at Once is a science fiction and supremely warm action adventure about an exhausted Chinese-American mother who just wants to finish her taxes. Starring cinematic titans Michelle Yeoh, James Hong, Kehu Kwan and Jamie Lee Curtis, it has already set the internet alight. I caught up with directors Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, otherwise known as Daniels, about what brought them from making music videos to the multiverse. Evelyn, I'm not your husband. I'm another version of one from another universe. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today. Uh, no time to help you. Across the multiverse, I've seen thousands of Evelyns. So many people will know you from your fantastic music videos, uh, doing things for Tenacious D, obviously you're in Turn Down For What. So what brought you to want to make a feature film, and specifically a feature film about the multiverse? We've always wanted to go into narrative. We always wanted to tell stories. And even with all of our music videos, we were telling mini narratives. And so that was our training ground and you know after a couple of years of doing that we're like i think we're ready let's let's do swiss army man and after that experiment of of trying the feature film process we're like i think we can go even bigger so this is where we're at now i really love being in london because london is where our music video careers kind of took off you guys were the first early adopters of our tone so thank you Thank you, London. <laughs> so if London was your first universe that you're thinking about here, tell me about some of the other universes that we see in the film. And specifically, what inspired you to make Hot Dog Fingers universe? We threw a lot of ideas at the wall throughout this process. And as you mentioned, there's a universe where people have hot dogs for fingers. And it was important to us. Eventually, we kind of found a process of deciding which universes to explore. And they were the ones that would push our character Evelyn forward on her journey of uh, having her brain broken basically. And so we always knew that we wanted things, each universe to kind of push her further out of her comfort zone. And so in a way, hot dog universe was designed with that in mind. We were like, what would break her brain? She's in love with her least favorite person in the world in this universe it's someone of the same sex. It's her tax auditor, and she has gross, wiggly hot dogs for fingers. The final ingredient was we love taking absurd, silly, gross things and making them emotional. And so it was, we always had in mind that eventually we're going to try to make this hot dog universe emotional. And so it was kind of by design that, like, okay, by the end, this is going to be a beautiful cathartic dance five number minutes, five minutes no i'm telling oh, a good sorry. story it's a wonderful story now as you mentioned all of these universes are happening all at the same time which results in some very dense shots where you've got all these realities competing with one another how did the density of those shots affect your shooting schedule and did you record all of the universes separately and then splice them together or how did that work? Yeah, yeah. we shot the movie like any other movie. We would shoot the whole Hot Talk universe in one day. We shot uh, the whole Science Spinner pizza universe in like 20 minutes or whatever. And then we just knew how it was all going to edit together. And it was, it, was a very, it was a fairly straightforward shoot. The only difference was we shot fast. 
We could only do two or three takes. Often we, we, we had to be really precise with what we decided to spend our time on. And the great thing is we've worked with this crew for so long that there was a lot of trust where we're almost reading each other's minds and able to like leapfrog over each other. And, you know, we shot this whole movie in 38, 39 days, which is very fast for an action film. And so, yeah, it was, it came down to just knowing exactly how it was going to cut together and just being very efficient with our time. So, yeah. You mentioned some of the cast members. We've also got the likes of Jamie Lee Curtis and Harry Shum Jr. in it. Is it true that you originally intended the lead for Jackie Chan and ended up rewriting the film for Michelle? Uh, half true. We wrote a draft. Our dream cast was Jackie and Michelle. Like we were like, yeah, of course, who are we going to pick? Like our favorite Hong Kong actors of all time. And then as we started exploring the realities of casting, Jackie was unrealistic. And then as we, we were like, who's our other favorite actor? It's Michelle. Like, and, and the more we focused on her character, the more inspired we got, you know, her character was always the co-lead, but it became so much more specific and, and more of a movie we hadn't seen before and more of a personal story because we have hilarious, beautiful, weird moms and there haven't been many action movies that star people like my mom, you know? So that was kind of the, the process. And finally then, the film has obviously already attracted such a warm response and I think people have really tapped into the emotional side of it. But it's also peppered with lots of other film references, homages, not just to your friends and family, but to the films that you love. One of my favourites is, of course, Rakakuni, which is just wonderful. What's a hidden reference in the film to another film that people might miss on their first watch? Oh, wow. Hidden reference to another film. I always say that the spiritual sequels uh, to this film or the things that we were trying to chase after were films like It's a Wonderful Life and Groundhog's Day because they're very big, high-concept ideas that deal with very dark themes like depression, suicidal ideation, nihilism, but they're fun. They're so digestible. And we, we told ourselves, we want to make a movie like that for today's audiences. Something like that goes dark and deep into the darkness of, of humanity's soul. And yet it's just so fun. You just can't help, but enjoy the, the, the ride. Um, so that's all in the DNA. Um, what this movie I love, yeah. uh, there's, there's actually a whole series of movies called Jackass. It's an American series. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, it's very emotional and touching. Yeah, it's, but it's it different. is, though. Like, the emotions that you get when you watch them give themselves paper cuts between their toes in, like, Jackass 2. Uh, I've never felt such intense, you know, cinematic... Catharsis? <laughs> Catharsis, yeah. And we have gags in the movie that are kind of designed to to make an audience kind of bond through the adventure you know like the trauma (laughs) yeah we kind of did people who watch the movie like oh i see it there's some jackass in there yeah i have to say watching the paper cut scene i was flinching in my seat i was not connecting to anyone i was (laughs) squint holding back every source of pain i could possibly imagine and i think that is our time thank you both for speaking to me yeah our pleasure thank you for talking to us Alex, you're an enthusiast of multiverses and metaverses alike. What's the story behind E-E-A-A-O, which I mustn't say like Old MacDonald had a farm? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, what a, what a film to have to press see um, without spoiling. I mean, effectively, I think I can say without spoiling anything that's not in the trailer that it's about parallel realities mm-hmm. basically seeping into each other and colliding with each other. But I think it's about more than that, and I think that's the cleverness of it. I think it's about the insecurity that out of all potential 
versions of you, you may be living your worst life. Yeah, mm. you are the worst that's, version of yourself. And that's what is at the center of it, and that's what makes it such an extraordinary, mm. extraordinary film. I, I, I mean, I don't think I've laughed as hard or cried as hard so close to each other in a film for a very long time. And having sat next to you in the screening room, I can attest that is true. I think I was a few rows back and I could attest to that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We mentioned Marvel's Doctor Strange, which we talked about on The Culture Bunker last weekend. How did this compare, Linda, as well? Did did this bend your reality in the same way? Um, I think this... Uh, what I loved about this is that it doesn't take itself too seriously. There are mm. things in it that are, that are completely out of this world. And I, it's not terribly coherent, I must say. You know, I, I think it loses its way a little bit towards the end. And there is one false ending, which I really enjoyed, which mm. I, I, I thought was hilarious. What I liked about it, firstly, is having... Um, it's heroin being a woman over 50, mm-hmm. which never happens. This is a, a big film that everyone's going to see. Even teenagers have been sort of raving about it, mm. about it as the greatest film. They've How often do we see that? A, yes. a, a film where the heroine is someone over 40, a female over 40, is taken in by sort of younger generations. I, I enjoy That's what I loved about it mostly. Uh, but I also really like the sort of chaotic. It's mm. because it's not uh, perfect uh, narratively. I really like that, and I think that shows that, that there is there is money there to be making films that are completely out of this world that don't e- exactly sort of adhere to to uh, Hollywood sort of you know boxes. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I I think that's what I loved about it. I think I loved that it didn't take itself too seriously. I loved that it was completely chaotic. I've seen this twice, and I wasn't totally convinced the first time and I went back and saw it a uh, second time and I was won over. Michael, what, what are I your thought. thoughts on the film? Um, I liked it, actually. Oh, good, good. Glad. <laughs> I, I, I was convinced that one of you wasn't going to like Maybe it. Maybe not quite as much as, you know, the internet does. Yeah, but, no, um, same, same. Yeah. But I think it was, you know, it was sort of hilarious and heartbreaking and hyperactive. Mm. I think you're right. I think it loses its way a bit towards the end. There's sort mm. of, there's almost like too many layers to it. It's yeah. a bit like a sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. it reminded me slightly of a sort of Stephen Moffat Kind of Doctor Who episode where there's like a, it's like a little gets a little bit too tricksy and vanishes up its own um, yeah, yeah. bagel a bit yeah, towards the I, end. I liked but, the bagel. Um, I liked the bagel. The bagel was good, but yeah. you know, and it's like the Matrix meets a Marvel film. <laughs> I love Jamie Lee Curtis in it. She sort of plays against type as this kind of oh, cartoonishly frumpy kind of tax inspector, and mm. it was really good to see um, K. Hugh Kwan, who is best known, of course, as Short Round from Indiana Jones yes. and the Temple of Doom. Yeah. And I don't think I've seen him in anything no, since then. It's in about 40 years. So it's a joy to see him. Um, and it's sort of quite, it's like a sort of sci-fi film scripted by Douglas Adams, I thought. like <laughs> It just sort of goes off into sort of stupid directions, which yes. is brilliant. Mm. That's um, a really good, really good uh, summary. It's, and it's quite psychedelic, isn't it? Like It's quite trippy. Oh, you kind of feel a bit like... You know, it's a bit like sliding doors with kung fu and hot dog fingers. Yeah. And it's also very... Yeah, I mean, what's not to love? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a bit like sliding door with kung fu and hot dog fingers. Yeah, yeah. There was... What I really liked as well was I love an unusual weapon in a fight scene. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, there's there's some dildos, which, yeah. are, which is very memorable. Someone yes. who's sort of using dildos as kind of nunchucks. But there's also, like... Someone uses a kind of police riot shield at one point. Someone uses a bum bag mm. or a fanny pack, as our mm-hmm. American friends would call them. Um, and then there's a brilliant scene where someone uses a sort of small dog and a lead as a kind of um, <laughs> kind of mace, yeah. which is brilliant. And the, the, I thought the fight scenes were really good. And it's 
it's kind of like an instant cult classic, I think. Uh, yes. It's maybe not quite as good as the internet makes out and does go a bit wonky towards the end, but yeah. on the whole, great, I thought. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm not sure. I, I agree that it goes a little bit wonky, but I think it's a third act thing rather than a fourth act thing. Yes. I think it sags a little bit in the middle, and I think part of the problem is the fact that they've tried, they've decided to segment it and give the chapters titles. Yeah, there's that everything because and then I everywhere and then all myself once, worrying that, oh God, we haven't even seen chapter two yet. What if yeah. it's as long as chapter one? And that was what the thing that took me out of it. I think that's what's interesting about it. It doesn't, it, it doesn't manage to even stick to, to its own <laughs> laws. Do you know what I mean? It makes, it's a, it makes a structure, but it doesn't stick to it. That's what I love about this kind of chaotic filmmaking. You know, you start making something and you know where everything goes and then halfway through it, you go, no, actually, I want to do it differently. Now, nobody is brave enough to do stuff like that anymore. And this is what, I, if that, this does well, at the box office, I think there is no limit as to, you know, uh, how much more stuff they can mm. do. And I've re- this is what I liked about it. And I don't think I've ever seen a film like it before. I think that's also a plus. Yeah. And um, this is encouraging for anyone coming up as a, a, fil- a young filmmaker to say, look, things can be done mm. differently. Don't be afraid. And I would echo, Linda, your call to be open-minded about this because this is certainly not the kind of film that I would read the description of and go and see. But I absolutely loved it in that way. And actually, there's so much of it, as Alex mentioned earlier, that's so emotional, that's so touching. It was really interesting talking to the Daniels because they said that they made this film because they wanted to make a film about their mothers, which just watching it from the get-go, you might not get that. But characters like Jamie Lee Curtis, her line about cold, unlovable women like us making the the world world go round. I found myself incredibly moved by a scene of two talking rocks who are communicating yeah. by <laughs> subtitles. <laughs> all these, and exact, it's exactly as we were saying earlier, all of these statements that you almost think you could never come out with when describing yeah. a film you happen to when, mm. you, when you watch it. If this. I can see, say one last thing is that um, I just, it's a film that also allows women of a certain age mm. not to be invisible. And I just think the invisibility of women... Uh, especially yeah. immigrant women after the age of 40, they become a sort of an archetype and there's nothing archetypal about her. And, mm. and that, I think that's what I liked about this. You know, I just also, I'm moved to tears to know that two young people can make a film where a female over 40 or over 50 even is the centre of attention, someone who gets to relive certain sort of important you know, yeah, absolutely. things her life. And I, you know. the, the only, I'm going to stop before I cry. <laughs> the only thing I would add, um, which is another reason to go see this, is that I have a huge fondness for films that could only be films. This couldn't be television. Yeah. It couldn't be, yeah. um, you know, a, a short. It couldn't be a radio play like The King's Speech. It, you know, this is cinema. And you know that from the very first shot, you know that this is going to be cinematically adventurous. You know, a mirror is knocked over and flips in a particular way. It shows you something, the camera moves through it. And you, I felt myself immediately relax at that point because I thought I'm in the hands of people who will take me on a journey. Now, talking of other films, Linda, you also have a quick guide for us for the new releases we should watch out for over the next week and for the rest of the year. Obviously, I think you guys are going to be talking about Top Gun Maverick next week. We are. So I will not go on any further, just to say that I have seen it and I 
you know, I won't give you my verdict on it. If you you can go read it somewhere else on the internet. Give us, give us some thumbs. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <clears throat> Okay. Those yeah. are two thumbs for two thumbs. listeners yeah, who aren't with us in the so. time. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, I, I won't go on about that, but I, I liked it very much. And then we, I think on in June we have um, Jurassic World Dominion, which is yet another. Actually, uh, this is likely to be a slightly better than the offerings mm. we've had mm. the last couple of times uh, because we've got you know, Laura Dern is back. And, you know, so that's going to be a good movie. And we have Lightyear. Now, July, we have Thor, Love and Thunder, and Taika Waititi's back to direct this film, which I think is going to be really good. And then Jordan Peele um, has a new new horror movie coming out in July, which is called Nope. It uh, stars Daniel Kaluuya, Kiki Palmer, and Stephen Yoon, who I adore. Mm. And then After Yang uh, is by um, director of Columbus, Kogo Nada. I hope I pronounced that right. And that stars Jodie Turner-Smith and Colin Farrell and all sorts. And it's a fantastic movie about a malfunctioning robot. And then then we also, we have loads of films coming up that are in the uh, Cannes programme. As we know, Cannes is the start of the sort of... uh, award season films, you know, bigger movies. Mm, mm. Uh, so we've got the Baz Luhrmann Elvis, and then we've got David Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future, which I'm really looking forward the to. The trailer dropped for that yesterday. Yeah, it fabulous. I, I just am really dying to see that. And then we've got the new James Gray film, which I, I am a huge James Gray fan. Not loads of people are. And I know he's a, if people know, he directed Ad Astra, Lost City of Zed. And then we also have Showing Up by Kelly Reichardt, who we all know from um, First Cow. Mm. There might be others, but um, those are the ones that I think everyone needs to look out for. Sexual awakenings, Marxist theory, self-destructive behaviour and a big dose of It's Always the Quiet Ones features in the BBC's latest adaptation of Sally Rooney's first novel, Conversations with Friends. When front-footed American Bobby, played by Sasha Lane, decides to flirt aggressively with married feminist novelist Melissa, Jemima Kirk, Melissa's trophy husband, Joe Alwyn, is left to spend time with Bobby's friend with a crush, Francis, played by wonderful newcomer Alison Oliver. I ain't going to spoil what happens next, but it's not hard to guess. <laughs> Here is the taste. Would it depress you to sleep with someone who loves someone else? Not if they loved me too. thought that maybe I wasn't capable of love, that there was something wrong with me. That isn't true. They're married. Oh, I thought he was funny. Do you have a crush on her? Obviously, I have a crush on her. I have this impulse to be available to you all the time. I don't want to hurt your marriage. My marriage has survived several affairs already. I've just never been party to them. I kiss Melissa. We've been flirting when it just happened. Who knows what happens between two people when they're alone? Linda, I have read both books, 
but never watched the BBC version of Normal People oh, that everyone raved about during lockdown. Yes. What were you doing in lockdown? Probably as a reaction to everyone raving right. about yeah. it during <laughs> lockdown, actually. I do that sometimes. Yeah. Um, does Conversations with Friends live up to it? No. Absolutely not. I hated it. I hated, <laughs> I hated every second. I couldn't... I tell you... So I have to, must preface this by saying that I love normal people. Love, I love normal people so much that I watched it all in one day. And then once it finished, I went back and watched it all again. Wow. From episode one. That's how much I loved, I loved normal people. And I think what I love about normal people is those two characters. I rooted for them. I want I even when they were being annoying and selfish and idiotic and making really all the wrong decisions in life, I rooted for them. I loved them. I fell in love with those two people. Mm. And I I just wanted them to get together in, in whatever capacity. I couldn't have given less of a shit about any of the characters. That's fascinating. Any of the characters in conversation with, with friends. I hated every single one of them. And it's a better I, book, you know. Uh, yeah, possibly. It's a not, novel. I have not read the novel and yeah. zero, zero interest in taking it up now that I've seen this. <laughs> and uh, my, just, I'm sorry, maybe I'm a, I'm a really, I'm a basic bitch, but I, there's I nothing... I don't, I, don't honestly, think, I don't think you'll do as nearly as well. Yeah, I, I honestly could not have cared less about what happens to these people. And um, I think also that fantastic, really, really good cast, uh, which is, I'm actually surprised at how, uh, but there's little a, I liked it. A cast with maybe a, a fatal flaw, though I thought. Which oh, is? Oh, well, okay. You tell. You have to, no, no. Go for no, it. No, no. Let's go for well, it. Well, I think that Joe Alwyn's character is the sort of the weak point of the mm. of the piece. I, mm. I, I think it's a real shame. I, 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 he's sort of so. He's supposed to be like this. In the novel, he's supposed to be mm. kind of too handsome for words mm. and sort of like catalogue-looking, like he's been designed by a computer. He's so handsome. Okay. He, but he 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 is sort of quite blank and lacks charisma and he's quite sexless I think and, yeah and because the you know the, the, the it's kind of a, a love quadrilateral rather than love triangle isn't it between mm. the four yeah. of them but because uh, ménage à quatre yeah, yeah because the sort of Francis and Nick's affair is sort of gets most of the camera time the weakness of his character is quite a fatal flaw I think I think mm. she's great yeah I think you know I think the the actress as you say Fran- um, Alison Oliver who's a real discovery I think she's absolutely brilliant and it's kind of her first screen role which is astonishing Paul Mescal, he was quite new, but Daisy Edgar Jones had done other stuff in Normal People. She'd been it, cold I just, feet I just found them so believable. Uh, I, I thought that the, the, the two in um, Normal yeah, People. Yeah, but also I it's, it's a lot. I just liked them. It's you know? a lot easier to root for teen romance against the odds, isn't it, than it yeah. is um, a sort of philandering husband and a kind of slightly well, I think if it was done, poet. I, yeah, but I know. think if it was done properly, I'd, I might have actually felt something. I just, I, as you say, probably Joel would probably miscast. And I just I don't couldn't... I miscast, but I, I think he kind of underplays I, it to the point of... Yeah. He's like a sort of... He's like a kind of overly handsome golden retriever <laughs> in all the things. He's just sort of... He's all kind of hair and kind of puppy eyes. His accent, he can't decide whether he's Irish or yeah. not. That's another problem I have with it. Is yeah, it's a very it's, soft little... It's, it's set in Dublin, but like no one's good. Irish apart from apart yes, from it's, it's, People have commented on that because in the, the book... Irishified, yeah. Um, it, both Bobby, who is American in this, mm-hmm. and Melissa, 
who is English in this. Yeah, they're all, yeah. They're, they're both I don't know Irish. if it's kind of cast with a kind of more of an eye on international markets, well, possibly I, I because normal people that. do Is so it well. a little bit cynical? It is a Hulu co-production. Yeah, Are they eyeing up a bigger global I think, audience? Well, probably. I think, I think, you know, Jemima Kirk from Girls oh, will bring a I sort of a certain her. US audience to it, yeah. maybe. And, I honestly um, don't think so. But it, it, it's... Yeah, it it doesn't. It, it feels a bit like one of those Netflix dramas that could be set anywhere. I don't know whether I'm technically a millennial or a Gen Z, but what I find really interesting oh, about Gen this Z, discussion definitely. is that, <laughs> as maybe then the we have a verdict to a millennial in the room. I've yes. I've never had any interest in Sally Rooney, normal people. This is a whole universe that was quite separate to my existence. Mm. And if anything, I find it quite interesting because I think a lot of her works kind of reinforce quite negative stereotypes about millennials and Gen Zs. I was reading a press release that said, if normal people was about two individuals developing like two little plants sharing the same plot of soil growing around each other, then Conversations with Friends is about growth too, but about the willful stunting of it. And you might as well just throw an avocado at me by this stage Mm. for all the things I I should feel about this. Yeah. Um, I think. Have, what, you, have you actually have you seen, watched? Normal yes. People? Okay. Uh, so I've not watched Normal People or read Normal People. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I was never so turned on by Connell's chain necklace, but I'm aware that that was a thing that happened. Mm. Um, <laughs> for me, I just found this to be very. I found it was very interesting that Joe Alwyn was selected for this because he's also in The Souvenir Part 2, yeah. which is a film we've spoken oh, about yes, before. Yeah. That yes, I, oh, that now I click. Yes. And I struggled with the film for a different but slightly related uh, reason to do with the fact that it felt very detached, very privileged. I'm not really that interested in stories about slam poets going away to Croatia when they met at their friend's party in Highgate. I know. But that's a personal thing. And I feel like for people who enjoy that, Mm. they will enjoy this. I feel like I need to step in and defend it now, even though I didn't love it. Mm. Um, But like I said, because I haven't seen normal people, I was judging it as a freestanding thing rather than in a framework of comparison. And I found it had a lot to recommend it. I mean, I did find it slow to start with, but I got into it. And I don't mind slow as a proposition in any case. I quite like watching two episodes of something that is frantic and then two episodes of something that is languid. I quite like that change of pace. I have to say, nobody minds that interrupting me. I, I, love, slow, I love slow moving things mm. because I, I want to sort of uh, understand the characters and fall yeah, in yeah. love with them or not fall in love with them or hate or develop a hatred for them. Like I didn't even de- develop enough of a feeling about these people to even hate them. Yeah. I yeah. just did not like... Yeah, I I mean, I I, I guess I didn't never develop a a big feeling for the people. I developed a big feeling for Dublin, um, which I really love as a city. And I thought the the shooting of the thing was a real love letter to it. Um, I liked some of the broader themes. I liked the idea that lust or sexual desire is something that if you act on it, you somehow cheapen it and it fizzles away. I like that central proposition. I thought the sex scenes were very good, actually. To yeah, that. the I sex mean, scenes are the, really... As they were especially in the first one. I thought yeah. it was terrific. They're very kind of intimate um, and naturalistic. And, and some of the writing is splendid. I, I jotted down this line where she asks him, what do you like about being an actor? And he says, the certainty, knowing what to say next, knowing what comes next. Mm. And I just thought, that's a really beautiful 
line and a really beautiful way to prepare an audience that mm. they don't these people don't know what comes next yeah um mm. so i i feel i need to defend it if only it was said um, by someone who wasn't like a Ken doll had made it with a yeah. with an Andrex puppy, and I, and I will probably watch the rest of it. A charisma vacuum, propping my iPad on the drying rack as I do the dishes, <laughs> which is which is something I tend to do. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, regular listeners know we also ask our guests to bring in their favourite songs of all time to add to our playlist. Why not torment them with an impossible task? How else do we get our kicks for the weekend? Linda, what have you chosen? Oh, it's I wouldn't say it's my favourite song of all time, but one of my favourite songs of all time, which is a song by the uh, singing Malayan duo Amadou and Mariam. Uh, it's called Je Pense à Toi, which I think is just a, such a wonderful song f- um, from a, a gorgeous album. And if anyone, nobody, if you haven't heard of them before, I really would like to direct everyone to go and listen to the back catalog. I don't know if they've released anything uh, ever in the last 10 years or so, but uh, there are a, a, a couple who met at a blind school. They're both blind and who somehow made it to international stardom when they were picked up by a, a, a French label, I believe. And uh, it's just uh, all their songs are gorgeous, just beautiful sort of Malian beat. Yeah. Wonderful. And Michael, what's your selection? Well, you know, again, I've probably gone slightly off brief. It's probably not my favourite song of all time by any stretch, but that's an impossible task. So what I did was, I'm on a bit of a kick for, I've been listening to Ride again. I really like Ride when I was a student, a sort of shoegaze band from Oxford. Oh, lovely. Um, and they reformed recently, and I've seen them live a couple of times on the Re- Reformation tour. So I've been going back through their stuff, and I chose Like a Daydream, which is one of my favourite Ride songs. Wonderful. So Je Pense à Toi and Like a Daydream will be on our rolling playlist. Link, as you know, is in our show notes and it's on Tidal now too. And with that, we're at the end of the podcast and it's closing time chatter. What will our alpha version's final pearls of wisdom be as multiple realities smash into each other? (laughs) Michael. I was going to flag up the end of Derry Girls this week Mm, on TV. So it's the last ever normal episode on Tuesday night on Channel 4, followed on Wednesday night by this sort of surprise bonus episode that they kept managed to keep secret, I don't know how, um, all set around the Good Friday Agreement. Um, so it's kind of like a double finale. Mm. Um, and I happen to have seen it, both episodes, uh, and it's properly amazing with some surprises that I've signed embargoes about. And, yeah, it, it's one of the most beloved and best sitcoms of recent years, I think, Derry Girls, and it ends on a real high. How about you, Linda? I, I'm having just for a change. I'm going to have a little bit of a moan, not a moan, more sort of a, a, a you know a sadness that I want to share. Um, I 
as we all know, uh, Fox, 20th Century Fox, was bought by um, Disney a few years ago and uh, sort of was slowly being phased out, although some of the Fox sort of um, offshoots are still making films. But um, Fox, as we know it, has, has gone forever. What I used to love about Fox is it's building... In Soho Square, next to Soho Square, everyone, I think anyone who's ever interested in movies knows knows where that building is or what it means to mm. film or and to film fans. And um, it sat right in the middle of, of what, sort of in the corner of Soho Square. And at the top of it was the sign for a 20th century fox that stood there for decades and it's been there for forever. There's been talk of selling off the building for a few years now when there's petitions go in and we don't know what's happening yet we have not I, I every every few months I get an email saying we'll keep you informed what's mm, happening mm. with this building what I did notice this time though when I walked past it was that the sign had gone the 20th century fox sign had gone off completely now I don't understand what that's happened and that's really made me very sad because there's no reason for a, a building like that it can stand and it can be used for something else but why remove such an emblemic an iconic, such an iconic yeah. thing that uh, even if um, it's not no longer the space for it because there are loads of places in London that are related to, to cinema that have kept those uh, the, the you know the signs and everyone knows that they're no longer there but there's the sign is still there because just be you know, for history's sake, I don't understand why that was allowed to happen. And it just makes me very angry and upset that um, cinema is not regarded as important enough to, for people to fight for its history and legacy. And uh, I, I, I demand to know why this was allowed to happen. And, and which scrapyard it's at so we can rescue it. On a whole, it just made me sad to see it. And I just feel, I feel if that had, that had been a, a theatre that wouldn't have been allowed mm. to happen. And I just think because it's cinema, people do not regard it. You know, in France, cinema is called the septième art, which is the seventh mm. art. Mm. Here, people clearly don't give a crap about the legacy of important things to do with cinema. And that really upsets me. Well, your impassioned plea. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> consider that Linda's strongly yes. worded letter, <laughs> I think. Yeah, Paddington um, stare. Alex, what's yours? So I recently came across a, a quite a, a little gem of a film called All My Friends Hate Me. It's on Amazon Prime. Um, and I, I, I am reluctant to describe it as horror because it's not, because nothing horror-y actually happens. But it has this rumbling energy, this rumbling menace underneath it, all based on the notion that this, you know, man in his 30s goes away to a, a sort of country retreat for a reunion with all his busy um, friends from university and begins to realize that none of them like him at all to the point where he begins to get paranoid that they're trying to Is it a film him. about me? Because that's how um, I feel most but, of the time. <laughs> but that's the point, isn't it? That we all have this yes. strange in a, uh, uh, you know, discomfort when Paranoia. we see people we haven't yeah. seen yeah. in years and years, do they still like us? Can we pick up where we left off? Yeah. And that's what it capitalizes on. And it's quite funny and it's quite different. And I enjoyed it very much and would recommend it. Oh, wonderful. How about you, Yelena? Well, it feels very fitting to round out this show in which we've spoken a lot about Ireland and around Irishness um, with my closing time chatter. Because if whilst watching Denmark's Eurovision entry, you thought, 
they're just a budget pillow queens, then you wouldn't be alone. Fresh from releasing their second album, Leave the Light On, Ireland's indie rockers are now on tour and we took a little office trip out the other evening to catch them at Scala for a sumptuous performance, mm. four-part harmonies and feminist anthems. Bass guitarist Sarah Corcoran is like a blonde Dennis the Menace. I love her. Um, but they're equally committed to the very practical task of entertainment. When the drummer came back on stage for their three, yes, three song encore, she <laughs> tied up her hair in the same way that I used to do when I'd walk into an exam hall. They were very committed to their performance. Um, she put up a hand for more paper at point. Yeah, yeah. Um, their songs, their music is wonderful. They talk a lot about the duality or perhaps the multiversality of the experience of womanhood. It's reflected as much in their music as the mixed ages in the crowd. And we are fortunately going to play out to a wonderful song of theirs called No Good Woman, which is a melodic resistance to male-dominated workplaces everywhere. And that confirms Linda's um, verdict. You are definitely Gen Z. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of the podcast. Thanks so much to Linda Marrick. Thank you. And Thanks, Michael guys, for Hogan. Me. Thanks for having me. For joining us on the Culture Bunker. Remember, you can get all the tunes on our rolling playlist. The link is at the top of the show notes. From myself and Yelena and producers Alex Reese and Alina Ganatra, thank you for listening. And as a special treat, we will play you out with a track from that Pillow Queen's album. Here is No Good Woman. See you back next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Time is up.